Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Welcome to the LSE for the final event of the LSE's 2023 festival. My name is Neil Lee. I'm a professor of economic geography here at the LSE. I'm also a faculty affiliate of the International Inequalities Institute. I'm also kind of an old, jaded, tired academic. I've been studying inequality, poverty and disadvantage for the last decade. It's not always been fun. So I think it's nice that today we're going out with something which is a little bit more optimistic. You know, maybe a little bit more sort of future focused. Maybe we'll be going out on something which is sort of helping us think, get into the sort of next period of life with some vision and optimism. And to do this, we're going to be asking the question, what would a fairer society look like? And I'm delighted that we have a stellar panel of people who are going to be kicking us off to talk about that. So we're starting off with Daniel Chandler, an economist and philosopher based at LSE and author of Free and Equal, What Would a Fairer Society Look Like? It's excellent. I have almost finished it, and I'm hoping (laughs) tonight's going to give me the sort of push through. Then we have Aicha Chibukju, an author, academic and editor based in London. She currently co-directs the Human Rights Programme at LSE, where she's Associate Professor in the Department of Sociology. Then we have Swati, Swati Deepak, is a practitioner in residence at the LSE's Marshall Institute. She works with private and public foundations in strategy development and design and oversees a portfolio of businesses and startups across philanthropy, socially minded businesses and the arts. And then finally, we have David Willits, President of the Resolution Foundation, who's a Member of Parliament for Havent, a Minister for University and Science, and worked at HM Treasury and the Number 10 Policy Unit. And he also has an excellent book on this topic, The Pinch, How the Baby Boomers Took Their Children's Future. And I love this book because my father, a baby boomer, bought it for me for Christmas, just to make sure <laughs> things were lively around the dining table. So, our speakers are going to be setting out their vision of how we can create a coherent vision for a better and fairer world. If you're a Twitter user, please feel free to tweet. Hashtag is LSE Festival. If you do have a phone, please put it on silent so that we can listen to people and not disrupt the event. The event's being recorded, and provided there are no technical difficulties, it will be available online afterwards. After our speakers have spoken for five minutes each, there will be an opportunity for you to ask questions. Please take that opportunity. If you're watching this online, you can submit them via the Q&A feature. Please include your name and affiliation at times. I will open the floor for questions in about 20 minutes, but first of all, we're going to be kicking off with Daniel. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks, Neil. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thanks, everyone, for coming out. And I think, yeah, the question of what would a fairer society look like is such an important one. I think it's so easy at the moment to point to what's wrong with our societies, to culture wars, the role of money in politics inequality, poverty, climate crisis, and yet despite those problems and despite the obvious appetite for something different, often feels very hard to find a coherent vision of what a better, fairer society would look like. And my book, Free and Equal, draws on the work of the philosopher John Rawls to try and set out that kind of vision. For those who don't know about Rawls, he was an American philosopher born in 1921, died in 2002. His most famous book is A Theory of Justice, which was published in 1971. And he's really the towering figure of 20th century political philosophy. I think it's hard to overstate the influence that his ideas have had within academia. 
and he's someone who's routinely compared to the greatest thinkers in the history of Western thought, the likes of Plato, Hobbes, Kant, John Stuart Mill. And yet his ideas are relatively little known outside of academia, and I guess the purpose of my book is to try to change that. So Rawls's starting point is the idea that society should be fair, and obviously he recognises that while most people agree with that idea on some level, we obviously disagree about what exactly fairness means or what a fair society would look like. And he put forward a famous thought experiment to help us think through that question and to move from the abstract idea of fairness towards a concrete set of principles that we could use to think about what a fair society would look like and how to design our basic political and economic institutions. So he argued that if we want to know what a fair society would look like, we should think about how we would choose to organise that society if we didn't know which person we would be within it, so whether we would be rich or poor, black or white, gay or straight. And I think that's both an incredibly, you know, an intuitive way to think about fairness. I think it's also pretty obvious that if we were to think about society that way, we wouldn't choose to organise it how it is today, where some people have to rely on food banks to feed themselves and where class, race and gender have such a profound influence on people's chances in life. So Rawls argued that we would choose two fundamental principles of justice to do with freedom and equality, respectively, and hence the title of my book, Free and Equal. So first he argued that we would choose the basic liberties principle, basically that we would want to protect our most fundamental freedoms, personal freedoms like freedom of speech, religion, sexuality, but also the political freedoms that we need to play a genuinely equal role in political decision-making. And then he has a second equality principle that's really got two interlocking parts. The first is a principle of uh, fair equality of opportunity, basically the idea that uh, everyone should have the same opportunity to develop their talents and abilities in life, irrespective of class, race or gender. And obviously on some level that's a familiar principle that's quite widely shared across the political spectrum, but I think we often underestimate quite how radical that is and also how far away we are from achieving it in practice today. Um, But still many liberals have stopped there and sort of argued that equality of opportunity on its own is enough and if we have equality of opportunity then inequalities don't really matter and that I think underpins the meritocratic thinking that's quite dominant in our political discourse. But Rawls rejected meritocracy and argued that alongside equality of opportunity, we also need to make sure the outcomes are fair, not equal, but fair. And that's the basis of his other principle called the difference principle, which is really the most radical bit of his philosophy. And that's the idea that a degree of inequality can be justified, but only if those inequalities ultimately benefit everyone say by giving incentives to work hard or to study or to innovate. But crucially, he argued that it's not enough that those benefits, you know, just a little bit of it trickles down to those at the bottom. He argued that we should organise our economy so that the least well-off are better off than they would be under any alternative economic system. And also he emphasised that when we're thinking about inequality, it's not only the distribution of money that matters, but also the way our economy distributes economic power and control and also shapes people's opportunities for dignity and self-respect. And then finally, alongside those two principles, he argued that we would choose a principle of intergenerational justice, a key part of which is maintaining the ecosystems on which any stable society depends. So I think you know, what's exciting about Rawls is that we get this very comprehensive and unified framework for thinking about what a fair society would look like. I think it sort of resolves some of the false binaries that were often presented with in politics between freedom and equality, between 
caring about opportunity and outcomes, and also between worrying only about money or, or thinking about dignity and self-respect. Unfortunately, rules didn't say that much about what it would look like to actually put those principles into practice. And as both an economist and a philosopher, the point of my book really is to pick up where rules left off and think through a practical program for what it would look like to put those, sort of achieve his vision of a fair society. There's obviously too much to go through now. I'll just sort of maybe give a sense of what some of those ideas would be. So I think first is to overhaul our democratic process, to get money out of politics through new ways of funding political parties. I make the case for proportional representation because that would make sure that every vote counts equally and that votes are translated into seats and also to incorporate more direct participation into the political process. I think we need to do much more to achieve equality of opportunity. The most important thing being investing in universal early years education, but I also think we need to look at the sort of elephant in the room when it comes to thinking about equality of opportunity, which is the role of private schools. And I argue that we should at least remove their charitable status, if not abolishing them entirely as Finland did in the 1970s. And then I set out a sort of agenda for how we might transform our economic institutions, including I make the case for a universal basic income, for a much broader agenda of pre-distribution, where we invest in people's skills and try to bring about a more equal distribution of wealth, uh, and then also an agenda for changing the balance of power in the workplace. So I'm conscious I've run probably way over already, so I'll, I'll stop there, but hopefully that gives a flavour of, I guess, one vision of what a fairer society would look like. Wonderful. Thank you very much. We'll now hand over to Aisha. Thank you for the invitation to share some thoughts today. Thank you also to all the workers and staff that have been making the LSE festival run. I have prepared some written comments because we were given only five minutes and I have chosen every word carefully. <laughs> I would like to begin by observing how the question posed before us today, what would a fairer society look like, refrains from conjuring an ideal society. It invites us instead to a limited, seemingly grounded, comparative framework. It demands we imagine not a just society, but a fairer one. Fairer than what? Every hitherto existing society? Or this one of hereditary rights? hereditary privileges, hereditary property, fairer than this common wealth of food banks built through colonial dispossession and slavery. Nevertheless, implicit in the question of a fairer society is the possibility, even the desirability, of transformation. But if something needs to be changed, that something falls short of everything we would need to transform to live in a just society, economically, politically, ecologically, ethically, globally. That everything includes quote-unquote realistic questions which strangle the imagination, rendering our yearning for revolutionary change and justice unrealistic not merely for now, but forever. Yet, it is in the nature of every revolutionary passion for justice, as the philosopher Hannah Arendt once named it, to resist this strangulation. The longing 
for what appears to be impossible compels us in Che Guevara's aphoristic command to be realistic by demanding the impossible. This revolutionary realism, as I would call it, contrasts sharply with what cultural critic Mark Fisher describes as capitalist realism. Capitalist realism is, in Fisher's words, the widespread sense that not only is capitalism the only viable political and economic system, but also that it is now impossible even to imagine a coherent alternative to it. Margaret Thatcher's forceful insistence that there is no alternative represents perfectly well the confining vision of neoliberals who are capitalist realists par excellence. Invested in drawing borders around the imaginable and the possible, their ideological work consists in shaping our sense of reality and with it what is and is not seen as realistic and achievable. Fisher argues further that capitalist realism is not a particular type of realism. It is more like realism in itself. This realism seeks to provide, I would emphasize, a shield protecting us from the perils posed by belief, especially belief in anti-capitalist ideologies of the past. Nevertheless, Capitalist realism maintains the prevalent and depressive belief today that all hope is a dangerous illusion. It renders any revolutionary desire for justice, social, global, economic, ecological, not merely unrealistic, but naively, if not madly, misguided. Capitalist realism, I would like to suggest, pens our imagination in colorless parades of trooping pragmatism, policing the limits of our capacities to act, to live, even to love one another differently. In this situation, the injunction to be realistic by demanding the impossible requires immeasurable experiments in imagining otherwise in feminist writer Lola Olofemi's formulation. It is not incidental, but essential to capitalism, however, that it incorporates into the global market as consumable goods our own anti-capitalist desires for living differently, according to different principles in a just society. In this scene, Mark Fisher finds, alternative and independent cultural spaces and attitudes become established styles in fact, the dominant styles within the mainstream. This insight allows him to observe how capitalist realism is very far from precluding a certain anti-capitalism. Here and now, if that all sounded too abstract, the LSE Festival, with its alternative question of a fairer society, can offer one example of what Fisher names corporate anti-capitalism. How else shall we explain the silence here around the strike wave that has been sweeping through and beyond the academy? 
as unionized workers at the LSE demand survivable workloads and survivable conditions, decent pay and decent pensions, it becomes impossible not to question the profit-making calculus of capitalist realism. Is this what a fair university looks like? Today, well-funded institutes examining inequality and well-attended festivals curated to demonstrate impact and corporate social responsibility both evidence and cater to our desire for social change and justice. They also offer corporations, and I'm not excluding universities, the opportunity to shape the world, as the LSE slogan has it, by confining revolutionary desires and energies within the borders of capitalist realism. In Fisher's words, such undertakings perform our anti-capitalism for us, not unlike Disney films with anti-capitalist themes, even this very speech. They enable us to participate in capitalism with a clear conscience. Nevertheless, there are moments and movements, networks and collectives, a surrealist poetics where capitalist realism cracks. Growing through those cracks, we become a spring, the Arab Spring, the Occupy Spring, the Movement for Black Lives spring to mind. They find us mad at last. Justice, that burning longing, enchanting every mantra of revolutionary action, opens the scene of our imagination. We promise no justice, no peace. Without capitalist realism, what would a just society really look like? That was a wonderful challenge, not least to this institution. Um, so if we can move on, please, to Swati. Of course, yeah. Thank you as well to all of the workers and all of the team for making today possible. I will just start by saying that a lot of what my kind of sharing to you of what a fairer society is really comes from the grace, the integrity and the wisdom of everyday people who are resisting around the world. For me, that's black and global majority feminists, children, youth activists, adolescent girls, indigenous peoples. Most of my real understanding about freedom really comes from adolescent girls. I was lucky enough to run a global organization that invested in girls' visions, uh, their ideas, and allowed them to make decisions over millions of dollars worth of philanthropic money. And one of the things that we used to start with was when we brought girls together, we would not focus just on the plight and on the injustices that they were facing, whether that was FGM, whether that was child marriage, whether that was violence, whether that was war. But we instead asked them to close their eyes to really think about waking up the day after the revolution and what it meant to truly be free. What did they feel like? What did they do? And what did they want to say to the people next to them? And the things that they would share would be very humble. To be able to walk down the street, to be able to wear what they want, to be able to dance, to be able to make decisions over their lives. All of the things that were denied to them as adolescent girls and continue to be around the world. Free societies 
are a vision, but they can become a reality. And that kind of vision and that passion fueled a lot of their work. It fuels movements today who, despite all of the odds, show up in pursuit of what a fairer and a freer society looks like. One of the things that always sticks out to me is the phrase by civil rights activist in the US, Fannie Lou Hamer, who says that nobody's free until everybody's free. And this notion that our freedom is not individual, but it comes collectively and it comes with others. There's also an incredible Aboriginal activist that I work with uh, called Lila Watson. And she says, if you've come to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you've come because you understand that your liberation is bound to mine, then let us work together. So for me, a fairer society is one hinged on a solidarity economy, where we're actually looking at social profitability instead of just financial profits. That the health and the well-being of people is considered over corporate profits, that the social and environmental impacts of the things that we consume and how we consume them are taken into account, and that there is real power built in the heart of communities around the world. Indigenous wisdom has taught me that not just the freedoms that we hope for over our bodies, the decisions over being able to move and make decisions over our bodies, they extend to our lands and our territories, that they're one. And when we're in such a time of not just social and political struggles, but also ecological and climate struggles, that wisdom becomes even more clearer for me. Again, with girls from around the world who came from very fragile communities, those living in reservation sites, in different national parks and, and other areas, what they really taught me was that when the land becomes exploited, whether that's mined, whether that's logged, their bodies also become the site of exploitation. There is no differentiation between the exploitation of the land and of people's bodies in those moments. And so we really need to think about solidarity economies that bring that together. Where will all of this come from? Well, I also take the black feminist theory of abundance, that we do live in abundant times and there is enough. I'm privileged enough to work with not just incredible movement activists, but I advise some of the most wealthiest families and companies in the world on their philanthropy. And I don't subscribe to the fact that philanthropy or billionaires are going to save us. In fact, that system is built upon exploitation and philanthropy itself cannot change the systems we're in. But what you do see is that there is incredible abundance of financial capital. There's incredible abundance of food. There's incredible abundance of all the different resources. But the scarcity mindset that we're currently living in prevents any of that equal distribution. So for me, I know that there is abundance. And I do believe that a fairer society is much more equal redistribution within that. And finally, I will just say that we do need strong and accountable democracies in order to steward a solidarity economy, to be able to ensure that freedom is there, to be able to protect social and ecological systems, and to be able to redistribute abundance. With rising fundamentalism, with rollbacks of progressive human and social justice agendas, with shrinking civil space around the world, we really need much more change. I will just end with two sort of phrases from Grace Lee Boggs, an incredible civil rights activist, 
who also reminded us that movements come not just from critical mass, but from critical connections. So we need to build movements that bring together disparate and diverse thought in order to really and transformatively change our societies. And also she reminded us to remember what time is it on the clock of the world? What are the challenges that we're facing today? And how do we organize, build solidarity and connect to one another? Thank you. And finally, David. Well, thank you very much indeed, and thank you for the opportunity to contribute to this debate. You've heard some very bold visions as accounts of what a fairer society might look like. I'm going to offer a couple of charts which just try to focus about on what Britain is like and how we compare with some relative comparators. So I'm president of Resolution Foundation, a think tank, and charts is what we do. So I hope you don't mind if I share with you a couple. Now, this is a rather different approach to equality, less visionary than what you've heard before, but this compares Britain with other advanced Western European countries. So this doesn't say imagine a radically different world. This says, think of us compared with Germany or France or Sweden. And this has the three lines. The red block is the incomes of people who are in the poorest 10% of society. The blue block is people in the middle in about 50%. And the pale green is the richest 10%. And kind of the flat, the zero, is Britain. So this is basically comparing Britain with some other advanced Western countries. And what it shows us is that in Germany, so that Germany is Deutschland, it's the block on the left. It's Germany, then Netherlands, then Sweden, then France, reading across. So this tells us that the poorest people in Germany are a lot better off than the poorest people in Britain. 25% better off. The middle people in Germany are about 20% better off, and the richest people in Germany are about 5% better off than the richest people in Britain. I'm not going to take you through every one, but if you look, go along to the fourth block, France, this tells you that in France, the poorest people in France are about 25-30% better off than they are in Britain. The middle people in France are about 10% better off. And the richest people in France, if anything, have slightly lower incomes than the highest paid people in Britain. So you don't have to have a picture of a radically different society. And what I say to my colleagues in politics and in policy and in the world of think tanks and the affluent people that I meet in business or law is... Why is it that when Britain is underperforming as an economy, so our total income per head in Britain is lower than Germany and the Netherlands and Sweden and France, why is it that the burden of adjusting to our being an underperforming economy compared with other advanced Western European countries is so heavily borne by the least well-off or the people in the middle. And if you are in the most affluent 10 or 20%, 
the incomes you enjoy and the comparisons when you go on holiday in France or Italy or skiing, you think you're about the same position as an affluent lawyer or banker or academic in those countries. So why is it that the burden of adjustment of our underperformance, which is a shared problem of the British economy, is borne so heavily by the less affluent? And I go on to say, actually, I want to see a reformed, more effective British capitalism. I think it is an imperfect system, but I think looking around the world, it's the best option we've got. But if we are to have the drive to reform our performance so we perform better as economy, it's a very bad start if the most powerful, most influential, most successful people in Britain, financially successful, are not seeing any of the costs of our economic underperformance. So that's the first chart. The second chart is about what I think is the most important change in British political economy over the last 30 or 40 years. And this is a ratio. It's a ratio between total national wealth assets, which for most of us individuals is basically two things. It's our pension rights and it's the property we own, our flat or house. It's the ratio of the value of those assets to the GDP, the national income. And it says that for a long time, basically, wealth was about three times income. If you tried to top up, like, calculate, tot up all the value of all the houses we've got in the country and the pension claims we've got, it added up to about three times GDP. But in an extraordinary change, in the last 30 or years, that has risen to something more like seven times GDP. So wealth has grown relative to income. And where you move from that as an abstract economic statistic to real life is that's why buying your first flat or your house out of your income has got so much harder. The gap between the cost and the value of wealth relative to what you can earn has grown. And uh, look, I used to work for Margaret Thatcher and Margaret Thatcher envisaged a society of what the slogan then was a property-owning democracy. She wanted to see ownership spread more widely. And she wanted a world in which if you worked hard, you could expect to build up an asset. A society where assets have risen so much relative to income is a society where acquiring wealth out of your earnings is harder and inheritance matters more. Inheritance becomes a more important route to wealth and earnings a less important route. Now that is not my picture of a healthy, vigorous society. And what the effect that it has had, and this is what my book is about, is that the people by and large who own all that wealth are of generation, the post-war generation, boomers born between 1945 and 1965, to which I myself Belong. So we've ended up riding this extraordinary escalator in which our wealth has become more and more valuable, even whilst uh, and got detached from earnings. And some of that wealth, it comes in roughly two equal forms, actually. We focus on housing, but pension rights are worth about the same amount. Uh, we voted ourselves pension rights in a form which is very hard for the younger generation 
to acquire the defined benefit pension. And to get a house, you have to be looking to your parents to inherit it. These, I think, are practical forms of what a fairer society might look like within the traditions and conventions and understandings of modern Britain. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. So, we only have an hour, so I'm going to press on to questions. I'm going to probably take questions in groups of three. If you put your hands up if you have them, and it would be nice to go to here. I think if we just start off with this gentleman here, and then this gentleman with the glasses, and then the gentleman with the headphones. Uh, David Walter from Hackney, uh, also Almany of Birkbeck. Isn't the idea of a fairer society in this country specifically to do with the fact that it's basically the horse that has bolted after the barn door has closed? I mean, since 1066, the idea of property ownership has been taken away by the Normans and then you have uh, the situation where the industrial revolution of the 18th century has basically taken away the autonomy of landowning peasantry who were then pushed into the, the cities to increase the power of the industrial revolution. And then also this goes into issues in colonialism where others people's land was taken over to supplement the wealth of uh, this country when it was an empire. How do you manage to overcome the unfairness of a thousand years of British history? Okay, great question at the end, yeah. Yeah, thank you very much, you uh, and Grant. I'm now a journalist, uh, mainly been covering the Ukraine war, which I um, did predict because of the uh, height of President Putin. My question is, where does taxation play in addressing the issues that Lord Willits has so precisely highlighted? Great. Thank you. And then the gentleman with the headphones. Thank you. So as a sixth form student, I was just going to ask, so you, you suggested that, that we should abolish private schools. So are you implying that inheriting from your parents or your parents' wealth is fundamentally unfair? Okay, so inherit, yeah. Daniel, do you want to start off with that one? Yeah. And then we'll go, David can talk about taxation and do you mm-hmm. feel comfortable with history? Yeah. So, okay, I'll take the question about private schools. So the, the reason I think we should abolish fee-paying schools, I should be specific, rather than privately managed ones. It's, the problem is with, with people paying fees and the case for that rests on the importance of equality of opportunity and I think an essential part of that is that people's access to education doesn't depend on how much resources their parents have. I don't think any passage of financial resources, the all transfer of financial resources from one generation to the next is wrong, but if it prevents people from 
being able to develop their skills and abilities and to participate in economic life, then that's the problem and that's the reason why I think we should abolish private schools. And part of what I'm trying to do in my book, I guess, is to show that there are sort of strong liberal arguments for doing that, that abolishing private schools isn't sort of a first step on the road to some kind of authoritarian socialist nightmare and that you can do that while still having a very strong respect for, for lots of important basic freedoms, but the freedom to spend lots and lots of money on a private school just isn't of the same importance as lots of the other freedoms that liberals can and do care about. We'll do the, the taxation point, which was, I think, directed at you, David. Yeah, and look, I think there's a legitimate debate about the total burden of taxation, and people can differ on that. But for any given amount of taxation, I think in Britain, we tax earnings and income too heavily relative to capital. So I would rebalance the system so that we taxed capital more. I don't think it's feasible to have a sort of single national wealth tax. There's no register of national wealth. But there are things you could do. You could have a different design of inherited tax, for example. Might well have a lower rate, but have a, get rid of a lot of the special exemptions. Uh, you could have a better designed council tax, which counts as a tax on capital, but is actually incredibly regressive and borne much more heavily by people in low-value properties and high-value properties. So, there's a, again, there's an incremental agenda you can do working within our system to have a fair tax balance. Um, I would just actually add to that that since just 2020, we've got the top wealthy in the world actually hold $78 trillion worth of wealth, um, a really huge amount of funding. And I don't know for many of you if you know the difference between a million, a billion and a trillion. They you know, have one letter difference, but a million seconds is 12 days, a billion seconds is 31 years, and a trillion seconds is 31,000. 1,600 years, thereabouts. So the level of wealth that we have is completely out of proportion. And I think the other thing was that since 2020, wealth amongst just the top 1% in the world grew by an extra 5 trillion just since 2020. And for every new billionaire that was created, which was every 30 hours, it pushed a million more people into poverty as well. So I do think globally, we really need to think about taxation and that redistribution. Um, and I can also tell you, as someone who works with billionaires, it's very hard to spend that amount of money. Nobody needs that amount of money. They struggle to spend it themselves, and the ones that are trying to give away their billions of dollars are accumulating their money at far higher rates than they're able to actually distribute it out. So... Wow. What, a, what a thing to be able to say as someone who works with billionaires, <laughs> so with inflation as it is, maybe soon. I would like to briefly thank you for raising the question of colonialism and its role in building the wealth of this country. Often when we operate within the framework of the nation state in a post-decolonization moment, empire's role, colonialism's role in building the riches of this country, which are of course privatized, uh, slipped from analysis. So one response to that would be to support movements for reparations. I think we have some questions online, so I'll hand over to Peter. 
So we've got a question from Mary Stokely to Swati, who said, do you believe that it is possible for our idea of a perfect justice or a perfect society to actualize in reality, or is it something that we can only ever work towards? Um, also, a, quest, a general question for everyone. Combining the arguments of rethinking private school status, investing in education, and the issues of inequality within universities, how should the role of universities be changed to achieve any of your ideal fair societies? Great. So, there are two good questions. Starting with Swati, if that's okay, and then David, and then we'll go to this side. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a really good question. I mean, I do believe that it's possible. I think when we look at the systems of injustice that have led us to where we are, they are socially constructed, whether that's uh, capitalism, patriarchy, race. These are socially constructed systems that, yes, have been put together and have been reinforced through policies, through social, through cultural, through legal and religious norms. But that also means that they are socially constructed. We constructed them collectively and it means that we can dismantle and reimagine them. Whether that's possible in my lifetime is something that I don't want to wait to find out. I would like to work towards that world regardless of my time on this planet. And, you know, I know that many, many people around the world ascribe to that. And that's what gets them through the difficult days that they're working through is the knowledge that a new possibility is there. And people see it within the movements that they work in. And it's not like these societies aren't able to change or to shift in directions. At one point, we thought that colonialism was the only sort of possibility. We thought that slavery and the transatlantic trade was the only normal. Those systems have changed. Yes, they may have been reinvented in other ways, but we are still aware of them and we're still looking to dismantle and reimagine them. Well, I think specifically on universities, the best thing we can do is ensure that people from a wide range of backgrounds and with low incomes get to go to university. And look, my analysis on that, having been the university's minister, was that, and this gets to the heart of some of the wider debates we've been having, when universities were entirely dependent on public expenditure, they were never a priority, as we've even heard. Early years, investing in early years is what not even was always the priority. And one of the ways of saving limited public expenditure on universities was controlling the number of places, which is indeed what they do in Scotland. My view was, if you take them out of public expenditure, if you expect well-paid graduates to pay back, and you get rid of the control on the number of places at universities, you actually expand opportunity. And the evidence is that is indeed what has happened. The biggest single growth in participation in universities in the last 10 years has come from people from disadvantaged, low-income backgrounds. And England has a far more access for people from low incomes than Scotland, because in Scotland, places are rationed. So I'm not a believer in rationing. I'm a believer in open opportunity and only paying back if you can afford to through having the earnings benefit of being a graduate. More widely, I would just make one point. I suspect I'm probably the only person on this panel who thinks that many of the alternatives to the system within which we live are worse. I don't think our system is perfect, and indeed, I actually think one of its strengths is the restless social conscience so every generation has new battles to fight to make Britain a better place or to make an advanced Western European country a better place. But I have to say, 
when I look around the world at whether I see an alternative model that is superior to messy Western liberal capitalism, I do not see it. And some of the concentrations of power required to make the radical transformations that the visionaries have always wanted to advocate, some of the concentrations of power required to deliver those changes end up threatening some of the freedoms we value. So yes, improve it. Yes, never accept what we've got. But don't chuck away what I regard as some of the fundamental principles of a free and open society, which is precisely why we can continue to argue about how it could be better. I'm going to come to you now, because you made some challenging comments about universities in your presentation. Uh, so. That's a very difficult question for someone who makes a living by <laughs> teaching at a university like you. Uh, I am also fundamentally implicated in the criticism that I raised during my talk. Um, I'm an advocate of being in the university but not of the university. I don't think the university is the only institution. This is Fred Morton, by the way, a theorist in the United States. I don't think the university is the only place where knowledge gets produced. The university has a monopoly, almost a total monopoly, unfortunately, over legitimate knowledge, what passes for legitimate knowledge. But knowledge production happens in social movements, it happens among activists, it opens within indigenous communities. So if the question is about the place of the university in knowledge production, I would displace it as the sole and only legitimate place where knowledge gets produced. Thank you. Daniel, I'm going to add my own little question onto you as well, which is that everything I've read about your book is like, this guy wants to abolish private schools. And I just wonder why you think that has been such an important... Why has that been so controversial? Yeah. Maybe I might take the question about sort of whether we can really achieve a just society first and then come back to that. I do think that it is possible, and I think Aitra spoke so powerfully about how important it is to retain a sense of, you know, to remember that our institutions are, you know, being created and Spati, you made the same point, and that we can change them. And part of what I think is so inspiring about Rawls's philosophy is that he really takes that seriously. He talked about creating a realistic utopia, a vision of the best that a democratic society can be, but you know, given the realities of human nature and based on a realistic understanding of how institutions work in practice. And you know, the project of my book is really to take those practical questions very seriously and to think through how we could change our institutions in a way that would bring that about and not just to look incrementally at what might be achievable at the next election, but to push a set of principles that I think do build on the best traditions of open and liberal societies that I think David is very importantly underscoring, but show that taken very seriously those principles point towards institutions that are really quite different to the ones that we have today and that, that really quite far-reaching change is, is both justified and possible. And so then, just yes, to come up to private schools, in a way it's a small part of the overall agenda set out in the book. I guess it uh, I don't know, I think it challenges a sense of 
sort of a particular attachment to, to freedom and a particular conception of freedom that's very dominant in our, in our public debate that sees sort of very expansive economic freedoms as kind of sacrosanct. And I think, again, part of what's helpful about Rawls's philosophy is it helps us to distinguish between the freedoms that really matter, freedoms to live our lives according to our own beliefs, freedoms to be equal participants in democratic politics, and some economic freedoms like the freedom of occupational choice, the right to own personal property, like clothing and housing, but distinguishes those from the sort of more expansive idea of economic freedoms that's often used to block economic reform by sort of thinkers on the more libertarian right and then opens the way to a liberal agenda that respects freedoms but also takes equality much more seriously. Sorry, I just wanted to say something about the possibility of another world and the possibility also of remaking the societies in which we live. This is just a plug-in to recommend as an anthropologist one book, um, The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity, which clearly shows written by two uh, scholars and anthropologists and an archaeologist, David Graeber and David Wengrow, which expands our imagination by showing in the great scheme of human history, we have, as you have suggested, imagined many different ways of living, much fairer, more just, more free than the short history of uh, capitalist structures when you think about the grand history of humanity. So uh, they note in in this history, three freedoms that humanity has always practiced. The freedom to move, which is under threat everywhere, the freedom to move, the freedom to disobey, and the freedom to remake social institutions and social arrangements, to reimagine them. I will have to disagree. I don't believe that there's a set human nature which then limits our possibilities. On the contrary, we make as humans ourselves. David, thank you. And I, I think those are important freedoms. I guess I would probably argue that they're more enjoyed more widely, though imperfectly, in modern liberal market economies than anywhere else. And I'd just like to understand what uh, prohibiting private education means. I was going to plead guilty to being a believer in economic freedoms. So we can buy things. We can buy holidays. We can buy cars. We can buy flats. We buy stuff. The offence would be committing the act of paying for education. So there would be a prohibited transaction, which presumably need to be enforced, that the one thing you're not allowed to buy is education, and if we catch you out buying some education, you're breaking the law. That is, it's feasible, I have to say, it's not a vision of a society that I find appealing or consistent with my view of the freedoms that people should have. Sorry. I think maybe just to add on is, and this is sort of a bit of a left field to the discussion around private schools, but I think for many wealth holders that I work with, and there is a global network of them, you know, they really think about the privileges that they enjoy and think about something that's called the story of my wealth. How did the wealth and the privileges that I enjoy today actually get created? Who was exploited, what land was extracted from, what are some of the things that actually led to me being here today? And, you know, education plays a role in that. Uh, but also, you know, many have looked back on whether their grand or great-grandparents were involved in the slave trade or whether they were involved in tobacco production or whatever it may be. To really question, have I landed in the spot of my sort of 
day-to-day -day life just by myself or has there been a story that actually allowed me to get there and by doing that it allows them not just to unpack and understand where they sit today but to really think about how they can play a role in a new social sort of promise with the democracies or with the societies that they work in today and I think that for me it's about making sure that everybody feels that they are able to have that internal reflection and to truly think about what privileges they enjoyed and how to make sure that we really do behave from a space of solidarity that is the place that I'm at today really something that everyone else can enjoy without me doing or sharing or moving some of my own sort of experiences, wealth, resources or privileges as well. Wonderful, thank you. We've got time for one more question. Can we get one from a woman? Oh, brilliant. Hi. Lola Olufemi was mentioned, yeah. and I love her work. I think she speaks quite clearly about not only what we should abolish to create a fair, fair mm -hmm. society, but also what we can create. Mm -hmm. And beyond abolishing the border, the nation, the market economy, kind of thinking about more radical principles of building, mm -hmm. of creating. I think maybe you could, if you could elaborate on that, or why I think liberal principles are very often quite frustrating mm -hmm. in these very broad, like, yes, everybody wants freedom, but what does that really mean? Mm -hmm. okay. And for who is freedom? Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. I'm going to just add on my own question to that because we're almost out of time. So then I'm just going to ask the panel, should we be optimistic about the future? Are these visions potentially going to be realised? So if we start this end with Daniel. Yeah, just on that question, I think that, although we've talked a lot about abolishing private schools, the, the sort of the agenda in the book, and I think Rawls's philosophy is very much a, an agenda of building institutions that would achieve those principles. And, and again, I think what's you know, hopefully the value of a thinker like Rawls is that it moves us beyond just the abstract idea of freedom to a specific account of which freedoms matter most, how much equality we should be aiming for, how we should organise our political system. So I hope it is a more practical basis for doing that kind of building. I guess on the question of how, whether we should be optimistic or not, I think I... I mean, I'm sort of optimistic by nature, and I guess the experience of writing this book, it involved looking around the world at really amazing examples of countries that are doing things differently in all sorts of amazing ways, like in Seattle, where they have a, you know, they fund, they've banned private donations to political parties, have a democracy voucher system where everyone gets the same amount of money to donate to political parties. In Germany, they have a very different system of a balance of power between workers and owners. I think so, sort of seeing all of those examples, seeing how they could, and trying to bring them together into something coherent, that gives me hope that change is possible. Wonderful. Thank you. Oh, very big questions. Um, thank you for very raising that. <laughs> yes, very short time. I don't, I don't even know where to begin, but I thought I would begin with the realization that our very imagination is shackled through demands to be realistic. So we need to clear imaginative space to be able to begin building another kind of life, another kind of world. So the primary task, and I'm not saying let's sit and imagine as we are 
sitting at the university. No, imagination also emerges in political practice and in communion and union with others. Nobody has the answers. I don't have the answers. Lola doesn't have the answers either. The point is for us to come together and dare to imagine together. Am I optimistic? I think we're heading for ecological disaster. <laughs> I think the inequality that your institute deals with are utterly unacceptable and disastrous. So how to remain hopeful? The long view of history, of human history that I mentioned gives me hope. The fact that we are creative beings, the fact that we have not always been here and we need not remain here. Yeah, I would just echo that I am optimistic about the future. I think change is completely constant. Um, time changes all the time. We live on a huge planet that is spinning all the time. Change is everything that humanity has always had, and it's everything that our communities sort of organize around as well, is the knowledge that change is possible, uh, that it's there. Um, I also think that Everything, and I, I mentioned this before, the inequalities that we're in, I too am sort of get into that spate of just being like, oh my God, another thing to be doomed about, another thing to feel unhopeful about. And yet it's the strength and the integrity and the hope of everyday people who, despite all odds, get up every day collectively to reimagine that world. For me, that's the world that I believe is possible. It allows you to dream, it allows you to hope, and it allows you to know, as I should also share, that it's not that it's just possible, it's happened many, many times over before, and there's nothing really stopping us from being able to change things moving forward. David, fine. I'm an optimist. I'm actually an optimist fundamentally because I think the younger generation have massive challenges, notably climate change, the climate emergency, but also fantastic resilience and skills and character. I think it's exciting that we have all these imaginations of a world without a nation state or whatever. I have to say, I personally think that those type of institutions serve us well. And as well as celebrating people who imagine a completely different world, we should also celebrate the decent lives led by people who, through toughness, bring home some earnings in order to keep their family, who try to raise their kids decently, who go out to vote for a political party that's close to their priorities. Does that kind of decency live within a modern liberal society that doesn't involve its being totally transformed? And that is another form of good citizenship. So we have to conclude. Talking of the younger generation, my nine-year-old's in the front row, so I have to conclude, because if I don't get home, her mother will be very cross with me. So it's the final event of the LSE Festival. We just need to say a thank you to all of the people who've been involved in putting it together, in particular the sort of staff teams, the sort of people who've been doing all the wonderful sort of audio viz and so on. I need to particularly um, say thank you to Antigone and Louise over there, who are two of the best people in the LSE at telling academics when they're talking nonsense, which is a lot of the time. So so thank you very much to the LSE Festival team. Now I have to remind you all that we have drinks, a drinks reception now. Um, David and Daniel will be signing copies of their books just over there. I've read them both and I would thoroughly recommend them. And just finally, if we could just give a you know, round of applause for our wonderful speakers. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you for listening. 
you can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.